So just another quick little note on that, and I'm sure uh, many of you know, most of those kids uh, are Syrian refugees, and their families, uh, not all of them, but many of them, were connected with ISIS and got ejected out of Syria, and that's why they're in Lebanon. So to have them getting the gospel uh, together for the family, and also it's like a training center, so they're learning carpentry, they're learning how to be barbers and all kinds of stuff there, and that's what those kids are doing. It's, it's a school, like a trade school for them, but they're getting Jesus the entire time too, and it's awesome. So keep praying for them, and keep pr- praying for Lebanon. All right, we are in Mark chapter 16 today, as we finish off the gospel of Mark. Hope everyone had a great Christmas. We had a wonderful Christmas Eve service, and uh, it was a blast, everything that uh, happened here. And uh, happy New Year's to everybody. It's going to be, I think, a a great year. It was funny because Candy and I, it was a busy year for us. And so both of us were like, yeah, 2022, eh, it was okay. (laughs) (laughs) But we were thinking like the busyness. And then we started like recounting all the things the Lord did in our lives and, and in our family this year, and we're like, you know what, it was, it was okay, it was a good year, you know, but we look forward to what the Lord's going to do this year too. All right, so uh, last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, we were in chapter 15, looking at uh, Jesus paying our price on the cross, and it's intense, and there's no way around that. Uh, it, it's something that is heartbreaking, and it needs to be. It needs to be one of those things that we're taking in what he went through and what he did for us, um, because this is what the love of God looks like. It, though very often I think we think of the love of God being the blessing, the good things, the happiness. The love of God is him giving his son for us and, and bringing us back to that honesty and that, that truth. Um, that Jesus would sacrifice himself to pay the price that we owed. We talked about while he was there in the garden, the choice that he made to take that cup of suffering upon himself. And that God the Father, you know, made it clear this was the only way, was through the cross to save mankind. But I think it's also important that as we come back into chapter 16, we remember that for the disciples and for those that followed Jesus, that, that knew him, at this point, all hope is lost for them. The one that they'd been following for over three years was gone. And none of them were looking for him to rise from the dead. Though he'd said it many times, though he'd been real clear and, and told them that this was the, the order of events that was going to happen, he'd be betrayed, he'd be arrested, he'd be crucified, and then he would rise from the dead. It's too much to hope for. And so for us, we understand as much as we can that him rising from the dead was proving all he he had said and done, right? This was the proof that he is God. He has all authority over the grave, over sin itself. They'd both been conquered. And his resurrection is proof of that very thing. Um. And as always, we're doing things a little bit probably different than everyone else in the world. So for our Christmas Eve service, we're doing Easter, right? And just like for our <laughs> for Christmas, we had a Good Friday service. <laughs> so, yeah, 
It's just the way it works when you go verse by verse. It's how it happens. So let's pray, and we will get into chapter 16. God, we thank you, again, just for your great love for us, and that as we get into your word, Jesus, we pray that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, that you'd have your way, and just uh, show us how these things apply to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So chapter 16, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, that they might come and anoint him very early in the morning on the first day of the week. They came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked, and when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in, in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him as he has said to you. So they went away quickly and fled from the tomb, and they were trembling and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now Mark's account of the resurrection is pretty brief. I mean, you would think, at least I would think, if I was writing this, I would probably spend less time focused on the negative things before the cross, and I'd spend a lot of time talking about the resurrection, right, the proof. But Mark's gospel, in, at, in large, is, a, is almost a summary. He hits the high points on a lot of things, and the resurrection is just like that as well. I think a lot of people, as they read uh, the resurrection, and really, I guess, all, all of the Gospels, that they see that there are differences between the accounts. And, and people get really hung up on that. Well, well which is the right account? Because this one said these things happened. This one says those things happened. Which is the right? Which is the true account? They're all right. And they're all true. Um, but they are told from a different perspective with a different focus, right? And so... As Mark is writing these, it's, or writing these things down, uh, there's a couple things just to keep in mind. Again, they're all true, and I think it's good for us to kind of wrestle through how they fit together. It's really not hard. If you just take the, the resurrection, you can read all four Gospels and their accounts, and you can get a real clear picture on how they fit together. Um, and there's going to be some things. You're like, well, I'm not quite sure how this works out, but I think it's good for us to wrestle with those details uh, because it puts us in the situation. At least that's what it does for me. When I start looking at all four Gospels and, well, he said, he said this took place, but what was the timing of it? I have to kind of put myself right there and imagine what it was like and what they were seeing. And it's really good for me. Works out a lot of details as I consider those things. Um, I think it's also important to keep in mind that none of the writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them were there that morning. 
John comes along later with Peter, but none of them were there that morning when the ladies showed up. And so what they wrote down was by interviewing these ladies, right, and talking to them and kind of trying to piece together what they were saying. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit that puts it all together uh, in order for it to become the Word of God. But I think it's taking all those things into consideration that help us understand why there are different um, focuses. There's a different focus on it. I know that when I was a police chaplain, we would uh, sh show up on a, the uh, scene of a car accident, and you start talking to people and interviewing people, and it always amazed me how you could have four people with four different stories of the exact same event, and it's putting it together, right? And, and it's huge things that you'd think that they, everybody saw this. Oh, you saw the truck on its side in the middle of the highway, and they're like, what truck? You know, <laughs> how could you miss that, right? This is that same type of thing. These events, as they happen, were very intense. And I, and I think sometimes we uh, forget how much uh, intensity and adrenaline must have been pumping as all of these things were happening. Now, again, we get a little different uh, picture with each. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, he was the only one that records that there was an earthquake before they got to the tomb. He also records the guards being there and, and seeing an angel and falling as dead men. No one else records that. Um, even when it comes to how many women were there, Matthew mentions two. John focuses on Mary Magdalene, her only. Uh, Mark mentions three. But if you add them up, they're different names. And so there's anywhere from five to six women. Could have been more than that, but those, that's who's named. Uh, they're at the tomb that morning. And again, it's important we remember why they're there. None of them were showing up to see if Jesus had risen from the dead. They were there to finalize his burial. They were there to do the hard work nobody else wanted to do, right? A few days before, Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea had put him in his tomb, had wrapped him in, in the cloth and, and done the initial part of the burial. But the final step is what they're going there to do. Again, it's hard heartbreaking work that usually would have been done by his family, but instead it is done by this group of women who just loved Jesus, and it's like this final act of kindness. And I even like the fact that they hadn't considered every detail, right? Though they had days to think about, well, what are we going to do? They just said, we're going to do it. But no one had really considered, what about the stone? Until they're almost there, someone goes, oh, wait a second, who's going to roll the stone away? And, and they don't have an answer. They, they had nothing you know, planned for that, which again, I think kind of speaks of the, the type of focus they had. We're, just, we're there for Jesus. And so they show up and find that the stone is already rolled away. Um, and again, I think we can get the wrong idea. Like it's almost this super calm, you know, these ladies are like, oh, look, hey, the stone's rolled away. Well, that's nice. One less thing for us to do. That's great. You know, and, and picture this calmness over everybody, and even as Peter and John, when you read the other gospel, that, that when they show up, they're like, oh, interesting. But we have to understand that, that when they saw that stone rolled away, it would have been terrifying. Again, not thinking Jesus has risen from the dead, terrifying that someone had violated the tomb of the one that they loved. 
It's such a terrifying thing that John tells us that when they saw the stone was rolled away, Mary ran. She didn't stay and see the angel. She didn't look in the tomb. She just saw the stone was rolled away, and she ran to go find Peter and John. Why? Because it was terrifying what it meant that someone had taken away the Lord, right? Now, the ladies that stay, same thing. It would have been a terrifying thing that even as they look into the tomb, um, there's this angel sitting there. And, and again, I think each of it would like compound the panic, compound the adrenaline. You see the stone rolled away. You look in. There's a person in there. You're not quite sure who this guy is. And with each step, it's like more and more shock, right? Um, in verse 6, the angel says to them, but he said to them, do not be alarmed. You see, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, it's interesting uh, to me. I know I've mentioned it before, but every time an angel shows up, the very first thing they say is, don't be afraid or don't be alarmed. And usually it's because I think angels are terrifying looking. This one's described in, in pretty calm terms, a young man in, in a white robe, right? So I still think there's probably something very obviously supernatural about him that he still has to say, hey, hey, it's all right, you know, be calm, don't be alarmed. But I think he's, he's they dialed him down a little bit by his description here. Um, I think he's still probably very impressive, very terrifying. And he just tells them, I know why you're here. He confirms it's Jesus of Nazareth who, you're, who, you're looking, who you are looking for, and he was crucified. So there's no mistake about that. But then he tells him, you're not going to find him here. You've come here with death in mind. You've come here to find a loved one that's deceased, and you're not going to find that. He has risen. He's not here. And I think this is the promise. They'd heard it, but they couldn't bring themselves to dare believe that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. And again, thinking of the brutality of the cross, all the things that Jesus went through, and those that actually witnessed the crucifixion itself, it's not something that you could see and not be changed by it. It's not something you could take in and go, ah, maybe he'll pull through. You knew There's no way anybody crucified in that manner would live. They saw him buried. They saw Nicodemus and Joseph wrap him and and, and prepare him for burial. Those things would have been etched on their mind. And the angel reminds them, Jesus promised you these things. Jesus said, he told you that he was going to rise from the dead. It's just as he has said, right? I think... Well, that's a simple thing. It's one of the main reasons we come to church, right? Is to be reminded it is just as Jesus said. In everything, right? Not just his resurrection, but in everything. When we see the world that we live in, in a downward spiral, it is just as Jesus said it would be. When we see the hope that we have in heaven, and that we only could find in Jesus Christ, in the peace that passes all understanding that can only come from Him. It is just as Jesus has said, right? 
And the point of us coming together as a congregation is to remind one another, hey, it's just like the Lord said. His promises are true, even when they're the hard promises. And in this case, it's the promises that are almost impossible to believe. He's risen from the dead, right? And they don't, they don't even really know how to process this. Now, it's easy to miss this. And I know we talked about this in Matthew. I think it's important to, to cover it every time we get to this point in Scripture. Um, part of the evidence that the angel delivers to the women there is the place where Jesus had laid. And, and I think we miss that, that we go, oh, okay, so he's going, oh, look, that's where they laid him, and he's not there anymore. It's a lot more than that. If you look at the four Gospels and the way it's described, and actually the original language makes it more clear in the Greek, it's the cloth that he was wrapped in that's the evidence. That's where they had laid him, right? And even as we look at the other Gospels, it'll mention the cloth, and it'll say that like the... The part that was over his face was folded in on its own. And we kind of picture that with all of them. Like, they're all in these neat little stacks. That's not it at all. The way they would wrap somebody for burial was much like we think of a mummy. And then they would wrap, after wrapping them, they would cover them in these different uh, spices and oils and all these things that would harden like wax. It was impossible to remove that covering. Impossible. It was a shell. And so when the angel goes, look at where he, they laid him. He's pointing to the clothes that are still in the shape of a person with nobody inside. That's the evidence. There was no way for Jesus to get out. There was no way for anyone to unwrap him and take the body and leave the cloth. Right? So, again, very subtle little thing that's easy. Most times people miss. Um, but it's important. This is the evidence of Jesus' resurrection that's given to the, the ladies there at that time. And then he gives them the instruction, verse 7. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. Um, there's a lot of discussion with people of why it's his disciples and Peter. Right? And some people say, well, it's because Peter lost his place. Because he denied Christ, that either Jesus has kind of rejected Peter, oh, he's not part of my disciples anymore, or the other disciples like booted him out of the group and were like, sorry, bud, you're gone. That's not it at all. Neither one of those. Because we know that the other disciples had not rejected Peter, that when Mary goes to find Peter and John, they're together, right? And we know that Jesus has great things still in store for Peter. He's already made a plan to, to bring Peter back. I think what's happened is Peter has separated himself from everybody. Because of his guilt, because of his denial, he's like, I'm not worthy, I'm nobody, I'm not a disciple. So Jesus has to make a special point of, go get my disciples and make sure Peter comes too. Peter's not rejected, Peter's not kicked out, he thinks he is, but make sure he knows I want him. I, Jesus wants to meet him with everybody else. Now, Again, the angel gives him this great promise. Not only uh, are they told that Jesus is risen from the dead, but that they're going to see Jesus soon. See, because the, the message from the angel could have very easily been, oh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven, and you guys just have to believe it. But instead, he says, he's risen from the dead. And just like he told you guys, 
He's going to meet you. You're going to see him again. And it's a great picture uh, of the ongoing relationship, right? It isn't just the Jesus they knew before. It isn't just the Jesus that they saw die for them. It's the resurrected Jesus who's alive forevermore, still connected, still wanting to know them, still instructing them, just like he does with us through his word and by his Holy Spirit. Ongoing relationship. Um, I'm always amazed, overwhelmed, and thankful for the people that Jesus calls to preach the gospel. Now, as believers, everybody's called. But I'm shocked at the ones that he calls for, like, very special callings, special anointing, right? To do the, the jobs that maybe everyone's like, oh, that's the job I'd like. And he, and he chooses the most <laughs> random, obscure, by our point of view, by my point of view, people very often. It's very rarely the rich or the mighty or the great theologian. It's the common. It's the lowly. It's the, the broken. And I love the fact that the people commissioned first before anybody else to preach the gospel as this group of women. It's the women who were sent out to preach the gospel. Go and tell my disciples. It's not the disciples that showed up at the tomb to do the hard work that morning. It's not the disciples that showed up uh, to watch them bury him. It was the women that are like, we will do what no one else will do. And, and I believe that in that case, they got the job that only they were fit for. And I love it. I, I think it's so cool. Um, again, as we look at these things and all these events, try and put ourselves there in that situation, I think we should understand how overwhelming any of this would have been. I mean, just part of it would have been a lot. An angel saying, oh, Jesus is risen from the dead. But then to show the evidence of the cloth that he was buried in and, and, and to say, go and tell other people and all those things, it would have been very overwhelming. Um, and it, it just continues. You know, they're commissioned to go out and preach the gospel. And verse 8, it says, And so they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Uh, what I have found in my life, when the Lord is doing some major work in me, or calling me to do something new, something, uh, maybe it's start a ministry, or maybe it's uh, just a new part of my walk, a deeper walk with Him, not just little things, but big things, it is exactly like these ladies at the tomb. It is trembling with amazement. It is fearful, joyful. It's the front seat of the roller coaster, terrifying. And then when you get to the end of it, you're like, wow, I didn't die. You know, and you're so excited. <laughs> but you're at the same time, you're like, let's do that again. It was so absolutely scary, but I loved every minute of it now that it's over, right? In the middle of it, you're like, oh, I don't know, you know. And at the end, you're like, no, that was pretty cool. And and I've found it's that same way when the Lord's like, hey, I've got something new for you. And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. Right? I'm pretty comfortable where I'm at. No, no, no. And he's like, yeah, let's do this. Let's see. Okay, you know. And, and it's that amazement and trembling. And, man, it is the best place to live. To me, when Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, that's what that abundant life looks like. 
We can't have it every day, but man, it is the abundant life. It is the life that we should be. Lord, I want more of that, I think, right? (laughs) Now, it says um, that, and they went out and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That doesn't mean they, they didn't tell the disciples. Right? They, they went and told the disciples. The other Gospels tell us that. Um, what it means is that on their way from the tomb to where the disciples were, they weren't shouting it out in the streets. They weren't telling strangers as they passed by. They weren't texting their buddies to let them know. They didn't do anything else. In fact, the way that it's worded kind of also tells us they probably didn't talk to each other. That they left the tomb in just silence. And they made their way to where the disciples were. Nobody's like, can you believe this is going on? Nobody says a word, right? And I think we kind of relate if we've been in situations like that where we're so overwhelmed with good news, we don't want to say anything to anybody. So that's what's being described here for these ladies. Um, all right, verse 9. It says, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard it, that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. And after that, he appeared to another, excuse me, appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told the rest, but they did not believe them either. And later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. And they will speak with new tongues, and they will take serpents up. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And when, excuse me, they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word through accompanying signs. Amen. When it comes to doubt and disbelief, for some, un well, I shouldn't say unknown, but for some reason Thomas gets all the blame, right? Doubting Thomas. But the deal is, is they all doubted. All of them. It wasn't until they saw Jesus that they believed. And uh, Mary goes and she tells them, but verse 11 tells us that when they heard it, they did not believe her. We know that the ladies also went and gave their testimony of what took place at the tomb and that they also saw Jesus on the way and they would not believe that either. Uh, The two on the road to Emmaus that are recorded in Luke 24 also came back and went, hey guys, he's alive. And they're like, yeah, that's what she said. And that's what she said. We don't believe them either. And so that's where the disciples were at. They, they didn't believe any of it until Jesus himself showed up. Thomas just had to come in later. <laughs> but all of them doubted. 
And there's a couple things that I love about that. First of all, the honesty of it, right? That we can sometimes put the disciples up on a pedestal like these guys were so great. They're just like us. And they had doubts and they had fears and they had disbelief. And Jesus met them right where they were at. With each and every one of them, he met them right in their unbelief, right in their doubt. And he didn't hold it against them. We're told that he rebuked them, which could be a pretty mild rebuke. You know, we think of rebuke being something very harsh and very, you know, uh, difficult to go through. But he just, I think, was probably like, guys, come on, I told you. (laughs) I told you this is how it was going to happen. He met them right where they were at. And it does not change the call that he had on their life. Verse 15, he tells them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Um, Again, a little thing, people get hung up in creature. Why is that word used? Like not just people, but animals kind of creature. Uh, It's a weird translation or the way that it translates into English. Uh, The word that's used there, it's not about animals. The idea is all who can be made new or all who can be a new creation, right? So that's people, that, that we are the ones who can be made new in Jesus Christ. And so he's going, go and tell everyone who can be saved to be saved. Now, the disciples don't pick up on this uh, at this point. It's going to come later on. But this is a radical shift in who could be saved. Because up until this point, it's only the Jewish nation. It's only those of Israel that could be saved. And that's all they're seeing. But by Jesus saying, preach to every single creature, every person that could be made a new creation, it, is bro- it breaks down all walls of race or gender or class. It's everybody. All can be saved. And that's really what comes down to what he's saying here in verse 15. Um, and he also makes it clear how simple Beautiful salvation is. It's not about us climbing steps to reach some righteousness. Keep these rules. Do these laws. Do these things. And eventually you'll be righteous enough to deserve heaven. That is every religion in the world. Everybody. In one way or another, it's about ascending to righteousness or holiness or some other state. It is only Jesus that says believe be baptized and you were saved. It's that, that's it. Right where you're at, in unbelief or in doubt, he, he wants to meet us right there and believe, be baptized and be saved. Really? And it, it's really simple, right? Believe and trust that Jesus is everything we need. To be baptized, again, is not something magical. Whenever we do a baptism service, always make sure that the people who are being baptized, I let them know this isn't some magical thing. I remember having a lady tell me, like, oh, I've been baptized three times. They didn't take. <laughs> what? <laughs> baptism is simply the outward proclamation of what you believe. Before other people to go, look, the old me has been buried and is dead, and a new me in Jesus Christ has risen. That's all it's about. It's important. It shouldn't be minimized, but it's that simple. Really, Jesus is saying, believe and let other people know you believe, and you'll be saved. But he also makes it clear. 
While the way of salvation has been made through him, it is the only one. That's it. It's not one of many, not one of a million, not one of two. But he who does not believe will be condemned. That's it. And that isn't because we have the right club that we're a part of. It isn't because we've chosen uh, the right one that we support. It's because the only one that could pay our price that we owed is God himself. No other man could do it. They owe the same debt we do. No other teacher could do it. They owe the same debt we do. God himself had to pay our price. It's the reason Jesus came. And he's letting them know, look, it's done. The way is made. Salvation is available to everyone, but you must believe. You must let people know that you believe. And to those who don't, they will be condemned because there's no other way to be saved. And then he tells them in verse 17, these signs will follow those who believe. And he lists supernatural things, things that we look at and go, man, that would be crazy. Laying our hands on the sick and seeing them healed. Casting out demons. You know, and, and people freak out about you know, the idea of picking up snakes. Really what he's doing, he's listing all the things that, take, that will take place in the early church in the book of Acts. Right? We see Paul getting bit by a snake and he just shakes it off. He's like, yeah, <laughs> got bit by a snake, everyone. And they're like, that guy's going to die, right? <laughs> because it's a poisonous snake. And, and it's not just for the book of Acts. Miracles still happen. The gifts of the Spirit are still available, still working. But I think the way we view them is different. I think we're a little bit more hardened against them, that even when God does a miracle, we tend to go, oh, that's nice. We prayed for that. What a coincidence. <laughs> right? I mean, if we're honest. But we should never think the supernatural is not still available. God is still working through the Holy Spirit and through His church in miraculous ways. But we should also know these are not the only signs that accompany those who believe. It isn't just the supernatural. It isn't just speaking in tongues. It isn't just prophesying. Those are great and they're important. But Paul would go on to write in his letters about the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. These signs will accompany those who believe. That while, yes, there's a supernatural side, I think we also need to be very real and honest about the signs of good fruit in our life are what most of the world will see. Right? They're not going to be there necessarily when the miracle happens. But they will be there in the workplace or in school or in our community or in our neighborhood when they see the love of Jesus Christ honestly flowing from our lives. When we are patient, when we are kind, when we forgive, when we go out of our way to take care of people that we can get nothing back from. These signs will accompany those who believe. The Lord has such good plans for us. We know that we're all saved the same. We know we're all called for the same purpose, though it might look in a million different ways of how we each preach the gospel. But again, it needs to come from love. And when it is, man, the Lord's going to do miraculous things. I'm excited about the year ahead of us. For our church, for us individually, I think he has great things and a great purpose for the believers in our, uh, in our community. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.